Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Go with me, if you would, today to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, we have Paul's sermon at the first pastor's conference that's recorded in the New Testament. Paul returned on his way to Ephesus, and uh, he, instead of going by Ephesus, uh, rather on his way to, to Jerusalem, instead of going by Ephesus, he stopped in the on the coastal town of Miletus and called for the elders of the church of Ephesus, that is the pastors of uh, the different congregations in Ephesus. And they came to him and he preached to them. And uh, we have in the next few verses uh, his sermon. I want to focus on one verse. I want to focus on verse number 21, but just to set the, uh, set the context, we'll begin in verse number, number 18. It says, and when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came in Asia, to Asia, in what manner I have always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Then down in verse number 27, he says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. We want to know the whole counsel of God. We don't want to know just certain parts of it. We want to know all the counsel of God and how everything fits together. Of course, you can't preach the whole counsel of God in one sermon. But uh, over over time, Paul said that he was able to present to them the, the whole counsel of God. I want you to notice in verse number 21, he said, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And then over in verse 24, he said, None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was a teacher of grace. Paul's revelation on grace forms the bedrock of New Testament doctrine. And he made this statement in verse 21 about his preaching and what his custom was and how uh, he presented the gospel. He said that he always testified to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you today about Bible repentance. What is repentance? 
what does the Bible say about repentance and what does true Bible repentance look like? I want you to, to notice that Paul said that the gospel of grace that he preached included repentance because he preached repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is just as much a part of faith as faith is a part of repentance. I said repentance is is as much a part of faith as faith is a part of repentance. They are two sides of the same coin. Neither faith nor repentance, that is neither genuine faith nor repentance can exist without the other. Neither faith nor repentance, genuine faith or repentance, can exist without the other. When it comes to believing for salvation, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has to accompany repentance. Paul preached repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He presented those as two separate things. If you look at it one way, if you look at it another way, he presented them together as, like I said, the two, two sides to the same coin. You know that you cannot, when it comes to faith for anything, you cannot turn to God without turning away from something. That's, you can't turn to God without turning away from what is contrary to God. You can't turn to the word with, without turning away from the traditions of men. You can't turn to God concerning healing without turning away from what you've heard from your grandmother or from your uncle John or whatever that, you know, who, who preached something that was contrary to the word of God. Faith towards God always involves turning from something that is not of God. Amen. Now, today, you often hear it said, and in fact, you hear it, you, you hear it everywhere, unless you just don't, you know, listen to anybody, but you hear it very commonly uh, declared that the word repent simply means to change one's mind. Who has heard that? Nobody? Put your hand up if you've heard that. Yeah, most everybody's heard the, that the word repent means to change one's mind and that that's all it means. Usually when people emphasize that, they are emphasizing that when they say the word repent just means to change one's mind, they are attempting to say that it doesn't mean anything else but that that there are no other aspects to repentance other than simply changing one's mind. Now, the way they arrive at that is by doing an etymological breakdown of the word. You know, etymology takes words and breaks them down into their, you know, into their constituent parts. And, and they say, you know, that uh, the word repent, and this is true, it comes from two words, and it means to change or to turn and the mind. We put that together, that's change your mind. But we know that words do not always mean what their etymology would suggest. For instance, the word ecclesia, the church, you hear me teach on this a lot, the word ecclesia, uh, you've probably read this in commentaries before, I read it uh, most of my life. They say that the word ecclesia, which is church, 
comes from ek, which means out of, and kaleo, which means to call. Hence, the church are, is called out ones. We've been called out. How many of you heard that before? Well, that's wrong. That's not what the word means. That's what its etymology says, but a word is defined by its usage, not just the etymology of the word. We know that the word, I'm going into a little detail here just as an example, we know that the word ecclesia, even though it's from that, those two words, to call or called out ones, <clears throat> the word in, in its usage didn't have that exclusive nature. Now, there is a truth in the Bible that says that God has from Jews and Gentiles taken out from the world a people for himself. That's a, that's a valid truth and a valid doctrine, but the word ecclesia doesn't reflect it. The word ecclesia was in use 200 years before Christ. It was used by the Jews and by the Greeks. The Greek, now, now people who take the word ecclesia and they say, well, it means called out ones. Other people say, well, it means an assembly. Well, that's closer, but it doesn't just mean an assembly. It means specifically people who have been called together. An ecclesia is a calling together. And, and, it, and it has the idea of a summon. In the, in the Greeks, they use the word to refer, to refer to a duly convened civic body, a group of people who had been called together to uh, transact some type of civic business. The Jews used the word, again, 200 years before Christ, the word ecclesia meant to call together, and it was a calling together of God's people. In both cases, someone was called together by someone other than themselves and greater than themselves. It's not just an assembly. A football team assembles in the, in the middle of the field at a huddle to get the play call from the quarterback, but that's not a church. That's an assembly. Uh, in, the, in the Jewish sense, in the religious sense, and this is way, the way people in the New Testament understood it, it's the way the Jews understood it, it is, it is God who has called his people together to assemble in his presence. Just like among the Greeks, it was, a, it was a, uh, 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 an institution of government that had called the citizens together to transact some type of business for the state. So they weren't just assembling on their own initiative. Neither was the, the, the children of Israel assembling on their initiative, initiative. They had solemn assemblies where they had been called together by God. Well, the, the usage of the word is what is important. And that's what people understood. Well, to, to say that the word uh, repent simply means, to ch- simply means to change one's mind and nothing beyond that is not, is not sufficient. Uh, according to this view that it just means to change one's mind, uh, accepting Christ means accepting that he has already forgiven you of your sins and he accepts you as you are. There's no real urgency to change your ways or to forsake sin because God's cool about it. He's Happy and you should be happy. He loves you like you are. You should love yourself like you are. That is a a very powerful message in the church today. 
And it's underscored by this emphasis that the word repent doesn't mean anything else than to change one's mind. You just, oh, Jesus is the Savior? Oh, I changed my mind. I believe in him. That's not repentance. And you can't have faith toward God without repentance toward God. See, too often, repentance is presented as a casual transaction. People just casually change their mind to follow God. But does the Bible support that? Well, we're going to look into the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Uh, Like I said, the modern day version of repent in that uh, concept, there is no sense of guilt of sin. There is no sorrow for sin. There is no sense of failure or sense of transgressing God's commandment. There's none of that. It's just be happy. God loves you. Believe that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're okay. Now, another scripture that is always used to support this is found in Romans chapter 2. Can anybody tell me where I'm going or what what the verse is? Romans chapter 2. You hear this very often. Verse number four, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Now, this is another uh, uh, proof text that people use that we do not need to, to speak against sin. We do not even need to talk about sin point out anything having to do with sin because all we need to do is to point out the goodness of God alone. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Well, in fact, there are some other things that lead to repentance, not just the goodness of God. Now, uh, you know, when it and I've said this many times, when it comes to Bible truths, the truth is always right down the middle of the road. But the church seems to get in the ditch on on one side of the road. That's extreme, extreme teaching on any subject. Has some truth in it, but it's emphasized to the point that it that it uh, abandons the the everything that balances it out, and so it gets people in the ditch. Well, when the church gets in the ditch on one side, to get things back into the middle you have to almost go into the ditch on the other side to get enough leverage to get that old heifer back up out of that ditch and get her in the middle of the road. Isn't that right? Uh, my spiritual father, Kenneth E. Hagan, was famous for pointing out, let's go to us, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5. He was famous for pointing out In verse number, the latter part of verse 18, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and as committed to us the word of reconciliation. Brother Hagin was famous for saying the church has never really preached the, the word of reconciliation. Instead of the church has gone out and told the sinner he's a dirty dog and he's no good and he's worthless and what we need to do is go out and tell the world that they've been forgiven by God. Now he was famous for teaching that. 
And like I said, in order to, what he was trying to correct was this idea of, of browbeating people with the word and, and calling them names and, 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 and uh, telling them that God hates them every day and that they're going to hell. He said, no, that, that's an extreme. And so you pull this out of the ditch by, by overemphasizing. See, the, the Second Corinthians where we just read is not an extreme scripture. It's just one scripture. It's one topic one, or one uh, view of something. But if you take that and, and preach it to the extreme, you have to at first almost to get the other, to get the, to get the church back up in the middle of the road. But if you stay on that, you'll get in the ditch on the other side. Brother Hagin actually used the, the, and, and made a reference to uh, the fact that the word repent means to change one's mind. I've preached that myself. And I will continue to preach that when it's appropriate because it has an element of truth in it. But it's not the whole truth. And this verse of scripture is important. But the Bible also has a lot to say about repentance and repentance is necessary. Amen. We're told that it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. And so that all that's necessary is to tell people of God's goodness. Focusing on God's righteous requirements is considered legalism. According to the popular teaching, to focus on on, God the righteous requirements of God, well, you can't do that because that's law. Well, the problem is the righteous requirements of the law still exist. I said the righteous requirements of the law still exist. It's the way we meet those standards of righteousness that has changed. We don't meet those standards by our good works We meet those standards by grace through faith. But the standards have never changed. I said the standards never changed. Go to to Romans again. Look at chapter 8. Verse number 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Notice the righteous requirement of the law is still there. I said it's still there. Hallelujah. Go with me to Romans chapter Three. Romans chapter 3. Now in Romans chapter 3, we have one of the most powerful presentations of, of salvation through faith alone and not of works. And it begins in verse 21, now apart, now, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Uh, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we have in in this passage a powerful statement that righteousness comes by faith in Christ. 
Everybody see that? I've, I've, I've focused on that and championed that truth all of my ministry. But sometimes we have to go back because people get into the ditch and bring another side to things. Even though the way we accomplish the righteousness, the righteous requirement of the law is not by keeping the law, it's by exercising faith in Christ through the grace of God. Notice verse 31 of this chapter. After Paul said all of that, after he said all that he said, verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. See, God's requirement for righteousness has never changed. God's standards of holy living has never changed from the Garden of Eden to today. And it never will change. He never will compromise. So, so there are righteous requirements of the law. Let's go back to Romans chapter 2 again. Now, you, people always emphasize the last part of verse number four. The verse says, do you not do or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But the first part of that verse is important too. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? But also notice he's not just talking about goodness. Not only goodness, but forbearance. What does forbear mean? It means to bear with. It means to endure. It means to patiently endure evil. He said you should not despise the riches of God's goodness or of his forbearance with you in light of your sin. See, God forbears with people and his long suffering. See, all three of those words, his goodness and his forbearance and his long suffering go together. The goodness of God is demonstrated in his forbearance, his putting up with us. Well, that that acknowledges that there's something wrong when people come to Christ that he had to put up with. It acknowledges that there was some evil that he had to bear with. It acknowledges that there's something in sinful man that causes God to suffer. And he is long-suffering. And so it's not just he's good, he's also forbearing. He's also long-suffering. And that should alert man to the fact that they are wrong, they are, they are not approved in his sight and in his presence unless they come to him through repentance and faith. Now, he goes on to say in verse number five, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. If, God's, if the righteous requirements of the law have passed away, then what is going to be the basis for his wrath in that day? 
If the righteous requirements of the law have passed away, then what is the revelation of his righteous judgments? No, he's saying that people who are hard-hearted and unrepentant, see, your hardness and impenitent, so those who are hard-hearted and have unrepentant hearts treasure up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Well, let's look, let's look then at what it means to repent. Let's get a whole Bible perspective of repentance and not just base it on the etymology of one word at one location in the New Testament. Like we said, the uses of the word, the meaning of a word is derived not only from its etymology, but more importantly from its usage. I like to use this example. There's a French word that we use. It it's, comes from the French. It's rejoice. I just like to use it because it's easy to use. The word rejoice is from the French. It's from two words, re. Anybody know what that means? Again. And J-O-I-R. How do you say that in French? Joie. Joie. And, and that means to, to be glad. So re, again, to be glad. So the word rejoice means to be glad again. No, it doesn't. Not in, not in popular usage. That's what its etymology says. But when, when, when you say to somebody rejoice, you're not asking them to reenact a former state of gladness. There's no, there's no thought about a former state. You're just wanting them to be glad now and act like it, isn't that right? So the word has to do with a former state of gladness that you are resurrecting, but we don't use the word that way. Well, how is the word re- repent used in the Bible? Glad you asked. The New Testament word repent was not amended from its Old Testament context. The New Testament concept of repent and the word was not altered or amended when it came out of the Old Testament. Go with me to Psalm 51. When people in the New Testament heard the word repent, particularly Jews who were familiar with the, with the Old Testament, it, it carried a certain connotation, a certain meaning. Now, we know what happened to David. How David sinned and uh, lusted after Beersheba, took, him, uh, took her into his house, Bathsheba, excuse me, took her into his house, committed adultery with her. She came to him and sent word and said, I'm pregnant. And all of this happened while her husband, Uriah, was out on the battlefield fighting for Israel. So what David did to cover his sin, he sent and got Uriah brought against his, against his protest, brought off the front lines and brought to uh, uh, home to be with his wife so that it would look like nine months later, well, you know, he was home at that time, so the, the child belongs to Uriah. Well, Uriah was such a faithful man, he, he refused to go into his wife. He said, I'm, I'm not going to enjoy the pleasure 
of marital life right now while my comrades are out on the front line. And so he slept outside. Well, when David found out that, that Uriah wasn't going along with his game, David sent him back out, put him on the front line and told the soldiers whenever the enemy comes, back off from him, abandon him, leave him alone so that he'll be killed. So David, King David, committed adultery and then he murdered, had her, the, 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 uh, Bathsheba's husband murdered. And you know the rest of the story. If you know the Old Testament, Nathan the prophet came to him and gave him this, uh, uh, this parable of someone that had taken you know, someone's uh, only you know, precious ewe lamb. And, uh, and he said, what do you do to that person? And David said, you, know, you destroy him. And Nathan said, you are the man. He said, God raised you up took you from among your brethren and gave you everything. You could have any woman in the land, but instead you had to have Uriah's wife. Well, David repented. We have uh, an account of that in, in Psalms chapter 51. David said, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness according to the multitude of your tender mercies. So right away, David acknowledges God's mercy. Blot out my transgressions. He also acknowledges his transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and, and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the inward part you will make me know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and make me clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a, a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it, nor do you delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken, or we might say a humble spirit, a humble and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Now, obviously, the Christian doesn't beg God for forgiveness, and, and the sinner doesn't beg God for forgiveness because forgiveness has already been accomplished. So we have to keep everything in balance. We have to take the, the Old Testament and interpret it in, in light of the new, but there's still some concepts, some underlying concepts from the Old Testament that, that are still valid. No, we don't beg God for forgiveness. 
And we know like in verse number seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Thank God the blood of Jesus has already washed us. The, 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 uh, the hyssop has already been uh, applied. The blood's been applied to our lives. Glory to God. And that's been done. But, but before you come to the place of acknowledging what's been done for you, it is appropriate to acknowledge what you have done that needs cleansing. Isn't that right? And so David, of course, he's not living under the, old, under the new covenant, but he, he had a remarkable insight into the grace of God. Even though he had committed these terrible sins, and even though he was calling on God's forgiveness, all through this, he, has, he makes statement that I know you will forgive me. I know you will restore the joy of the Lord to me. I know I will enter into your courts again. I, you, I know that you will accept me again. So he had a great uh, revelation of the coming grace of God. But that doesn't uh, take away from the fact that people of the Old Testament understood that the sacrifices of God, when you come to God, are a, a, a humbled spirit, a broken or a humble and contrite heart. It says, these, O God, you will not despise. Let's look at some other scriptures. Go with me to Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And let's go to the 8th chapter. Does anybody know an important popular scripture from the 8th chapter of Nehemiah? Anybody? The Lord, joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Now, some of you charismatics don't act like you've never heard that song before. I know it's embarrassing, but you did sing it, right? Yeah, Sue sang that. Yeah. Yeah, Julie back there. The joy of the Lord is my... Ha, 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 That's not exactly the setting that that verse comes in. It's not exactly a frivolity setting. Go with me to uh, the eighth chapter. Now, the children of Israel had been in captivity... The Persian government, the Persian empire was, was reigning. The children of Israel, some had returned to Jerusalem, some hadn't. Those who had turned, to returned to, the, to Jerusalem, the walls of the city had been broken down and destroyed and, and things weren't going very well. So Nehemiah, he was a cup holder for the king of uh, Persia. And so he went to the king and asked if he could go and, and uh, encourage the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. So uh, he was given permission to go. And he and, and Ezra worked together at the same time. Nehemiah, uh, Ezra was a priest. Nehemiah was, a, was an organizer. And uh, in, after they had rebuilt the walls of the city, the people for generations had forgotten God for a long time. That's, how, that's why they ended up in captivity. And even the ones who were in captivity had never gone back and studied the law again. So they didn't know God's righteous requirements. They didn't know what, they require, uh, what God required of them. So uh, said in verse one, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the wall, in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law to Moses 
which, which the book of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could bear or could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women had before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose and beside him at his right hand stood these other guys and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people and when he opened it all the people stood up and Ezra blessed, blessed the Lord, the great God and all the people answered amen, amen while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord and their faces to the ground. And then these other guys uh, helped the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those who, for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. When the law was read with all of its righteous requirements, the people wept. He, he, he said, Do not be grieved. So they were grieved. They had a sense of sin. They, had a, they saw after all of this time how they had failed God, how they had turned their back from God's righteous requirements. And when the priests and the scribes and the Levites uh, described to them the meaning of all the law of Moses, the people wept. They repented. But then the time came then when uh, he stood up and said, no longer weep, no longer be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So in the New Testament, of course, we know the same thing is true. We don't, we don't stay in, a, uh, in an atmosphere of weeping and grieving over sin. We move on to the joy of the Lord. But you can't move to the joy of the Lord until you acknowledge sin. Amen. Uh, Isaiah 55, 7. We'll read some real quick. Remember, the New Testament, you cannot interpret the New Testament view or uh, concept of repentance without placing it in the context of the Old Testament, the history of the Old Testament, because there was nothing in the New Testament that altered the meaning or the concept of repentance. Isaiah 55 and verse number 7 Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. It says the wicked man in the Old Testament was was to forsake his way and turn to the Lord. Go to Ezekiel 14. 
Ezekiel 14 and look at verse number 6. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from your abominations. Notice repentance was not just a change of mind. It was a change of heart. It was a change of, of purpose. It was a change of direction. Repent, turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all of your abominations. Go over to the 18th chapter of Ezekiel. It was the prophet's job in the Old Testament to call the nation to repentance when the nation had sinned and gotten away from God and transgressed God's law, the prophets were sent to call them to repentance, to call them back. So look at the 18th chapter and look at verse number 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity 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 will not be your ruin. Again, notice, repent and turn from your transgressions. Go over to the 33rd chapter of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33. What does this have to do with the New Testament? We're going to show you. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And then go with me over to uh, Jeremiah. Go back to Jeremiah. Look at the eighth, Jeremiah 8. And let's look at verse number 4. Moreover, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, Will they fall and not rise? Will one one turn away and not return? Why has this people slidden back? Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I listened and heard, but they did not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes to the battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times and the turtle dove, the swift, and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribes certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Therefore I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them because from the greatest, from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness from the prophet even to the priest. Everyone deals falsely for they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. The margin of my Bible says superficially. This is what has happened in the modern church world. They have healed the hurt of people superficially saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Where, where Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall 
In the time of punishment, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. It is, it is a false and superficial reassurance when we tell the people who are lost that, listen, your sin doesn't matter to God. It just, just turn to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but your conduct's not important because everything's been forgiven. Don't worry about it. God is, is, is cool about everything. People have to know from where they've fallen. There is repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two things are, like I said, the two sides to one coin. And I'm going to illustrate it before this service is over. Uh, Go with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse number 19. Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated. He said, when I was instructed and knew how I'd fallen and where I had missed it, I struck myself on the, on the thigh. I was ashamed and humiliated. There, there again, we're, we're emphasizing stuff over here more than I ordinarily would. I'm, I'm over here on this side more than I ordinarily would to, to counteract something that's over here on this side. Are you following me? In order to get things back in the middle of the road. There has to be a turning from sin and an acknowledging. The very fact that Jesus is the Savior declares that we need saving. It's not just a good deal. Uh, Go to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Every Pentecostal knows where the book of Joel is. Verse number 12. Now again, we're reading Old Covenant. They didn't have all the light we have, but there's still some some principles that are the same. Not everything, but some some basic understandings that are the same. Joel chapter 2, verse number 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. See, in the Old Covenant, they had, a, they had a habit when tragedy struck or sorrow struck, people would tear their garments. He said, don't tear your garments, tear your heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And then, uh, so, so we see from that, before we go on further, any further, that repentance is threefold, has three aspects. It has an intellectual aspect. There is a change of mind, but there's also a spiritual aspect. There's a change of heart. And number three, there's a, a volitional aspect, a change of purpose and will. All of those things have to be involved. Now, with that background, now we come over in the new covenant, and like I said, we, in the new covenant, we've been given tremendous light 
Jesus has come. The sacrifice for our sin has been made. We have been declared righteous before God. The sins of the whole world have been placed on Jesus. And our message is to go out with the ministry of reconciliation and announce to the world that your sins have been pardoned. God's not holding your sins against you anymore. That's the message of reconciliation. But we cannot leave people with the idea that living wrong, living sinful doesn't matter. People still need to have the knowledge of transgression and what it means to need a savior. That's the point I'm making. So what does New Testament repentance look like? Like I said, in the New Testament, repent the word repent and the concept of repentance is drawn from the Old Testament with the further light of the New Testament But when Jesus, you know, John the Baptist arrived in Israel preaching repentance, didn't he? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Repent. Jesus, it said, began to preach. He began to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, when his, when, his, when his audience heard that, they knew what repentance was. Repentance was a deeply felt, a deeply uh, understood humbling of the heart. Jesus said that the repentance of sin, repentance from sin should be preached to all the nations. Didn't he? Luke 24, sure he did. Well, the, the New Testament person who heard those words understood what repentance was. So let's look at it in the New Testament. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now the background of this is, of course, there was a man in the church at Corinth. Paul had to write to them in 1 Corinthians and talk to them about it and had to correct them and rebuke them. There was a man in the congregation who had, who had taken his father's wife, evidently his stepmother, had taken his stepmother away from her husband, away from his father, and was living with this woman in sin. Paul said, it's even unthinkable. He said, even among the the Gentiles, we don't hear about stuff like this. And so he told them that they were to turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of salvation. So they did that. So Paul wrote back to them after they had Uh, acted on what he told them to do. And he said, uh, nevertheless, God, verse number, we'll start verse number six, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Now, 
the popular teaching today is the goodness of God leads people to, to salvation, isn't it? It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. Here he said sorrow, godly sorrow led to, led to repentance. We can't just take one scriptures and, and one scripture and make that the whole counsel of God. It's not just the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Did it not say that? For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There's a difference between the sorrow of the world, which is condemnation, and godly sorrow, which is a godly regret for missing God's mark, for missing God's commandment, for for failing to please God. In the life of a believer, sin should produce godly sorrow. And if it doesn't, it's because of a hardening of the heart. If it doesn't, it's because of an impenitent heart. Now, you do not wallow in that you immediately understand that God has made provision and that he is not holding your sin against you. But that does not mean you do not acknowledge the fact that you failed God. And that would make you sorrowful if your heart is right toward God. Anytime a Christian does something that is is wrong, his heart will let him know that it's wrong. And if you have a tender heart toward God, it'll make you sorry. That's what, that's what leads to repentance. He said, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the, Lord, sorrow of the world produces death. Observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. There is a godly manner in which to sorrow. What Now here's, here is a picture of godly sorrow. Here's a picture of the repentance that comes from godly sorrow. What diligence it produced in you. Repentance will produce diligence to do to honor God, to live right. That's something that's sorely missing in the church today. Diligence. What clearing of yourselves? Well, I don't have anything to be cleared of. I mean, all my sins forgiven. That's not the right heart. I said that's not right, the right heart. What indignation. There is a godly, godly sorrow will cause repentance that, that will have this mark about it. There's an indignation against sin, something that rises up against you. I don't want to fail God. I heard uh, 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 one of the famous ministers from years ago, I don't know if it was Spurgeon or Moody, somebody in that caliber, years ago made this statement. I read it and it was a powerful statement. He said, I would rather leap head first into hell than to knowingly disappoint and transgress my God. Most people would just leap headlong into sin. He said, I'd rather jump into hell than to knowingly disobey God. Listen, the church has got to develop this kind of of attitude towards sin. If we're going to stand the test of time, if we're going to stand before this wicked and adulterous generation, we have to have this kind of a heart that we do not want anything in our life 
that is not 100% pleasing to God. And anything that comes in should make us abhor and, and fill us with indignation. He said, notice what diligence it produced, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. See, it always ends up in vindication. What vindication? In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this manner. So we see that uh, New Testament repentance is something that's more than just a casual changing of the mind. New Testament repentance is something that it's, it's not just an emotional thing, but it'll affect your emotions. But it's something that is deep, uh, deeply, it takes place deep on the inside of you. It's not just, well, I just have a difference of opinion. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. That's the difference between a, a, a quasi-faith or a, or a pseudo-faith and real faith. There's a fake faith out here today, guys, that people are being led into that's not scriptural. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.